Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Stephen Sadman, Patterson Chair in International Affairs at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. I'm also the director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Battle Rhythm episodes drop every other Wednesday. Our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is on unceded Algonquin territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. Each week, I will be talking to one of our four co-hosts, Aaron Gibbs von Braunschott, Vanessa Kimball, Lena Tamsetto, and Arthur Wolichinski. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Battle Rhythm. It's been a while since our last episode before the break. Uh, this week, we have Aaron Gibbs von Braunschott from the University of Calgary as the co-host du jour. Uh, how was your break, Aaron? It was very good, Steve. I hope you had a good one, too. Mine was uh, exceptionally short. It felt like <laughs> one week does not go very far. Well, uh, the, you know, the heavy wears the crown of the vice dean. So I guess you had a lot of stuff at, up to the end and start, start early again, right? Yeah, I think there's always that rush when people think that they have to get something done before the break. So it wound up being very busy that last few days before we all departed. How about yours? How was your holiday? Well, I spent most of it making cookies, so I can't really complain about my break. I had a, a big outburst of baking before I left, uh, and then I had fun distributing the cookies to my friends around town. And then when I got back, uh, we had not managed to get gifts for our neighbors, so I made another burst of cookies with my new cookie gear that I'd gotten over from Santa. So uh, I had a good break, I think. That sounds um, excellent. Have you ever tried mailing those cookies? Does that work? <laughs> well, since I'm visiting Calgary a few times over the course of the next few months, I don't really have to try mailing. I used to mail cookies long ago, but the problem is, is uh, I don't think the mail is as reliable as it used to be. But uh, when I was college, yeah. high school and college, I used to make chocolate chip cookies all the time and mail them to, to Oh, wow. But, so you've uh, been doing this for quite some time. That's good to hear. Well, the cookie thing was was something I used to do and then went away, and it's it's now back in full force. I promised my wife after we both gained weight over the holidays that I'd stop baking for a while. But Valentine's Day is coming up, so exactly got to get that chocolate ready. Yes, uh, my that is definitely my wife's preferences for chocolate desserts. Mm -hmm. All right, enough of that. So today we're going to talk about a few different issues. Uh, we're going to start with. Brazil, when they had the various people see or run into the Brazilian Congress building, which I've been into, but I was in, in a, uh, my visit was much more peaceful. Were you surprised? Did it seem like January 6th? Does it, were you having a case of deja vu? Yes, it did seem a lot like January 6th. It, it's sort of like history repeating itself, but just in a different location. So it was a bit scary to see all of that happening. It was very January 6th, like in terms of where they went, what they did, and, and some of the rhetoric was also similar, if not maybe even scarier in some ways. Why was it scarier? Well, you know, I I was listening and looking at a lot of information at that time, but one, one reporter who I actually was a, a little bit drawn to from the New York Times was talking about his experiences uh, with the people who are sort of in their, the uh, encampment. And, mm. you know, uh, as I understand it, uh, Bolsonaro did say, you know, this is a done deal. And they were saying to the reporter, no, this really isn't a done deal. We're going to do it no matter what they say anyway. So they seem to have a bit of a 
I guess a momentum that was was carried on regardless of what their their leader supposedly was saying. So I, you know, I think in the January sixth episode we can attribute a lot of what happened, I think, to Trump. Whereas in this case, we we still can to Bolsonaro, but he did seem to back away at the end. So it seemed in that way that the crowd had momentum that was not really led by the political figure anymore. Is that does that resonate with what you? Yeah, well, I think I think that that, that is a key distinction of the centrality of Trump uh, to the event, whereas Bolsonaro was eating fried chicken in Florida. Exactly. Uh, so you know, on the one hand, you know, the, one of the big differences was that when this happened, Bolsonaro was no longer in power. That so I think a critical difference was that Lula was already in power, whereas Trump was still in power. So. Uh, we've already seen a strong reaction by the Brazilian government and the legal authorities to begin arrests and all that sort of stuff. There was a bit of a lag waiting for Trump to leave power and for Biden to assume power. So I think that's one critical difference that, that made this less severe. One thing that might have made it more severe, more scary, is that Brazil's history of civil military relations is just a wee bit different than the American one, where... The question is, is would the military intervene on behalf of Bolsonaro? You know, the, in the United States, it was the thing was, well, is the National Guard going to stop this? And will they do or do, will they do nothing in that? And ultimately, the National Guard didn't do, do anything in, in a timely manner. But there was no sense that the American military was going to come out and support the insurrectionists. No, exactly. Uh, you know, the initial reports in D.C. on January 6th was, oh, the cops are letting them in. But then you saw very quickly how the... DC cops and the Capitol cops put their lives on the line, quite literally, to 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 stop or slow down the insurrectionists and save lives that day. Whereas I think we saw more pictures from Brazil of the the police at the uh, the Brazilian Congress, who are military police, welcoming the insurrectionists or the rioters or protesters, whatever you would call them. Mm -hmm. So that that is also something that makes things a little more troubling. So it's they're comparable, but they're not the same thing. But there is the populist election denying thing is the common glue. But this kind of reminds me of Arab Spring, where Arab Spring in 2010, 2011, you saw waves of protests across the Arab world, but you saw very different outcomes across the Arab world with only one country going democratic, which would be Tunisia. You had coups in Egypt, you had civil wars and a couple different places, most notably Libya and Syria. And then you had successful repression in Bahrain and Saudi Arabia and places like that. And so you had a, a common motivation to protest, but it led to different outcomes because of the countries had different, well, mainly civil military relations. And in this case, we're seeing the same common dynamic across the world of sort of right-wing populism that's delegitimated institutions, including elections and democracy itself. But yeah. you're seeing different reactions because, not, and it's not just civil military relations in this case, but there's larger things going on here that are at work, but it means that we're going to have, you know, similar exposure to the same virus, pandemic, mm -hmm. uh, pathogen, but not necessarily, say, not necessarily the same outcomes, if that makes any sense. It does make sense. I think it'll be interesting to see how, given those different factors that were at play at each of the protests, mm -hmm. you know, how they how it evolves. So now this, these protests have sort of seemed to somewhat fade away. Mm -hmm. But like 
it, does this mean something bigger and well, not better, but bigger and more significant is going to reemerge? You know, I feel like there's sort of like shape shifting a little bit that happens after, after these protests and you don't really know where it's going to resurface. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a, I imagine there'll continue to be protests that's sort of a mainstay, but you know, where these things fester is uh, I think kind of the interesting aspect of it as well. Yeah. And I think one of the challenges is we don't know enough about Brazilian politics or media. You know, one of the key things that happened after January 6th is that you end up having a media landscape that favored continued election denialism. And you had then political processes where the primaries in the United States fostered incentives for politicians to continue to engage in election denialism. And I just don't know how the media and the political process in Brazil works to foster more of this or or it might just be a fever that breaks because well now the Bolsonaro is hanging out in Florida nobody really doesn't really have the same ability to control events or to dominate the narrative on the other hand it seems like all these folks end up in Florida so what does that say about Florida I know it always seems Florida is the escape place as a criminologist I always am kind of curious what the outcome is to these events if you know when obviously laws have been broken and and people have you know they have been committing chargeable offenses when they're at these protests but you know, there has to be consequences to protests or illegal or damaging criminal protests if, you know, otherwise, if there's no consequence, these things just reemerge and continue to happen. As we sort of saw in uh, in the Ottawa trucker convoy, you know, like things just stay. There has to be consequences in order to sort of control these these incidents. Yeah, that's exactly it. And we've seen a bunch of people from January 6th not only get arrested, but get prosecuted and convicted and put in jail. Right. And we're seeing the same in Brazil, where I think their criminal process is probably a wee bit speedier. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing uh, this happen, where they've actually even uh, yanked out, I think I want to say the local governor, who might have been supportive of the effort, that he was already been move from power. So they're 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 moving at a, a faster speed. But again, part of this has to do with the fact that this happened with a, after the transition, not before the transition. So that makes it much more straightforward. Right. But again, one of the questions over the course of time will be how many people get, you know, convicted, how many people face serious time, all those kinds of questions. Mm-hmm. But I guess w- what we'll need to do at some point is bring on a Brazilianist. One of my colleagues is a yeah. Brazilianist, so uh, we should bring on Jean Dodela to to talk about some of this stuff uh, since he knows it far better than we do. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about something else that that we're experts in, which is air to uh, service to air missile systems. Mm-hmm. That is, Canada made news over the break by committing to spending four hundred million dollars to buy one of the United States's systems to then transfer to Ukraine, the Mm -hmm. National Advanced Surface-to-Air Missile System, or NASAMS, which doesn't quite sound as good as HIMARS, but is in the same basic category of acronyms. So when you saw this, that Canada is briefly acquiring, if if it actually will ever have its actual hands on, these weapons, a system that our own military has been wanting for Ukraine. So there's two pieces of this. Is Is this what we can do for Ukraine? And then what does it say about what we're buying for ourselves? Yeah, I I guess when I first saw the story, the, the first thing that came to mind was our discussion of last time when we talked about what makes a good ally. Mm-hmm. So I think this uh, speaks to a couple of different ways in which Canada is being a good ally, obviously by buying U.S.-made missiles, as well as delivering it to the Ukraine. So I think it's a win for, for Canada on those two fronts. But I just don't know if this is exactly what I would have been thinking that Canada would 
would do in terms of their support of the war effort in Ukraine. Mm. I, I guess I was a bit surprised about the the thing, like the the actual product that is being delivered here rather than some other sort of support. What did you have in mind instead? I don't know, people, you know, I, I guess I was thinking that it would just be sort of other sorts of support, like whether it's not legislative change, economic support, that would make more sense to me that they that the money would be transferred and the Ukraine could then purchase what they needed themselves. I think that that would, be, mm-hmm. would have been sort of the first idea that I would have had is that it, economic support would have been sort of the, uh, a bit, for me, it would have made more sense than a, a missile defense system. Because it suggests that there's, I don't know, to me, it suggests that there's uh, an expectation that this is going to be ongoing for quite some time. And maybe that is the expectation. But I think money is always, it's like when you want to give your kids a gift, (laughs) because then they buy with it what they need. And I I know that... uh, that Ukraine has been asking for arms and, um, you know, support that way. But I, I just would have, I, maybe the 500 million that they plan to support them with would have been better in cash than stuff. Uh, that's an interesting take on this, I guess. For me, yes. Uh, I mean, do you give somebody a gift or do you give them a, a gift card? I think for Ukraine, what they really, really need is anti-aircraft weapons. And so I don't think they're, I, I'm pretty sure that this, system was something that Anita Anand had been spending a fair amount of time talking to the defense minister of Ukraine, Reznikov, to figure out what they want. This is not socks. This is not something that, you know, a kid's uh, art project that will be an unwanted gift. You know, this this is definitely what they, what would have been at the top of, of Ukraine's list for Santa would have been this kind of system. Mm-hmm. Um, they, you know, the Russians have been mercilessly sending missiles down upon populated areas. They're trying to destroy Kiev and other other cities as a way to coerce the Ukrainians into giving up right. or to or, to, or at least change their you know what they're willing to bargain about. So this this is desperately needed by the Ukrainians given Russia's strategy. So I I'm pretty sure this is exactly what what the Ukrainians would have wanted. I think what becomes controversial is is actually when it's juxtaposed with our own procurement stuff because it's like well, exactly these are exactly the anti-aircraft missiles that the CAF have been asking for. That there was a realization that there was a shortfall that we used to have anti-aircraft systems that they became obsolete. That there was a realization that we couldn't buy them at, uh, in the aughts because we had to focus on. Afghanistan and Afghanistan did not have missiles of this kind, you know, and, you know, ballistic missiles or cruise missiles to attack us. So at that time, you know, there's an acceptance of risk. We didn't, we could use these kinds of systems, but we didn't need them at that moment in time because of what we were doing. But now that that focus is over, that we're no longer worried about Afghanistan and investing in the war in Afghanistan, it would make sense then to invest in these kinds of systems. So the the real question is not why did we give these to Ukraine in some ways, but why have we not already ordered a batch of them for ourselves, given that if we go to war, we're going to be facing the same kind of weapon systems that the Ukrainians are facing. While our allies have some of these things, we can't be sure that they'll have enough to protect our forces. Now, another flip side of this is maybe that's the answer is, is that we'll always be operating in, in an allied capacity. And so therefore we don't need this as long as our allies have enough of these things. But I think what this war has shown is you can't have enough of these things. No, that's true. I'm sure that uh, you're right about the, that the Ukraine wanted these sorts of things. So I like the economic idea just as a, I think that's 
sort of less politically charged, given as what you've just pointed out that somehow we are able to purchase these immediately. I don't know when the delivery date is of this system to the Ukraine, but there is that flip side that we seem unable to deliver on our own procurement issues in the same way. But I guess there's different political sorts of uh, parameters around procurement for Canadian defense versus procurement for, you know, a gift giving. Gift giving. Uh, yeah, I think I think that's exactly the thing is, is that the law, the laws, and the processes are very different. And so mm-hmm. I think, you know, it's it, the thing that I'm struck by. Is it's less of a Santa Claus thing and more of like in sports, you know, you, a three team trade where, you know, it's the United States has is now facing challenges in what it can give to Ukraine because the Republican Congress, that the Republicans dominated House of Representatives, uh, means that it's going to be harder to pass, you know, new bills that would send stuff to Ukraine. But selling stuff to the candidate is something that can be done through a different procedure, apparently. And right. so this this eases things for them. And meanwhile, Canada, which doesn't have domestic production of these things, but does have its own procedures, which allows it to sell arms expeditiously, allows mm-hmm. them to do this. So it's a win-win-win. And that everybody, all three players get to do what they want to do, but it requires the three of them. Mm-hmm. But for Canadian procurement, I assume that, you know, for us to buy these systems, we'll have to fit, you know, they'll have to develop a process that will either be a competition, although I don't think there'll be a competition because I don't think anybody else makes these kinds of things. But instead, there'll be a sole sourcing where they have to justify clearly why there's a need to sole source it which is not something they have to do when they're buying a weapon system for some other country. So I think exactly. this cuts a corner that that regular procurement does not. But it may, it may make it easier down the road for the Canadian Armed Forces to get these things because it's going to be hard for the government to say, we bought this for Ukraine, but we can't buy it for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think I think it'll create political pressure for, for this procurement to go through sooner rather than later, I think. Yeah, so it's definitely put it on the front on the front burner. Yeah, it, I, I think everybody does win this way in terms of again being a good ally with with the United States, can, Canada, and the United States, and then offering, I guess, what Ukraine does want. It's mm-hmm. it's good for everybody. It's bad for the Russians. Mm-hmm. And these days, what's bad for the Russians is good for for us. Many others, yes. Yeah, I mean, one of the conversations people are happy having is, is why are we doing this? Mm-hmm. Spending resources on somebody else rather than our own military. And the American response, the conversation about this has been, well, if Russia is one of our uh, a significant threat to us, and somebody else is willing to degrade them, uh, rather than us actually be involved in wars, and this is a, a, a relatively inexpensive investment, because this war is going to set back Russia's military capability 10 or 15 or 20 years, given they're exhausting everything they've gotten on their shelves. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's the humanitarian thing about you know protecting Ukrainians. There's the allied thing about supporting NATO. And one of the ways to support NATO is to keep Russia occupied with someplace else. And if, if Russia can't defeat Ukraine and loses to Ukraine, that makes Russia a much less of a threat to the, those countries that we've essentially sworn to protect, which would be Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, mm-hmm. Poland, Romania, and all those places. Yeah. I was startled looking at the calendar today. Of course, I know what day it is, but the um, it's just about been a year like since Russia did invade Ukraine. And it's uh, I would not have thought that it would have gone on quite this long, but I, I don't know what the expectations are for when this will end. But uh, nearly a year is, is a long time. Most wars last less than a year. Most wars are shorter than this. But 
this war is going to last longer, both because both sides have more capacity to fight and neither side has, there's, there's not an easy split. Mm -hmm. There's not a bargain that both sides can imagine right now because the Russians have made it very hard for the Ukrainians to bargain Yeah, because the Russians have abused the people that they've, you know, the territories they've occupied, they've raped them, they've deported the kids and abducted them. They've, they've murdered people. And so it's very hard for Ukrainian politicians to say, hey, we can give up some of our territory to the Russians to end this war because the fate of those people who live there is just too dire. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's made it even hard to, for the Ukrainians to say, OK, we'll take back the Donbass region, but you can have Crimea. Yeah, uh, that's become very difficult. On the flip side, there's not a lot of pressure on, on Putin right now, it seems, from the public. But the more and more he has to mobilize hundreds of thousands of people to send into the battlefield to be used as cannon fodder, yeah. the more pressure he's going to face. So the sanctions are biting. The sanctions are, you know, the Europeans just announced a new set of sanctions that's going to escalate the sanctions further. But I think Putin was betting a whole lot that, that's, that this winter will put a lot of pressure on Europe to back down and reduce its support. Mm -hmm. I think there's a whole lot of hope, wishful thinking that with the Republicans potentially winning the midterms, that the United States would no longer be resolved and would not support the Ukrainians as much as they had in the past. That the bet was that Ukraine would be fighting alone in the future. And mm -hmm. that hasn't happened. That it's been a warm winter. Climate change has produced one good thing, which is the Europeans are more uh, independent from or less pressured by energy from Russia. Mm -hmm. Germany has gone from being one of the most dependent countries in the world on Russian energy to being completely independent, which is bad news for the future of the Russian uh, energy business. And again, because it's less cold, the concerns that Europe would freeze and then therefore then back down haven't materialized. Yeah. So that wishful thinking on the part of, of Putin has failed. And I think the narrowness of the Republican victory and how messed up they are in the House has meant that Biden has more room to continue to support Ukraine. Mm -hmm. So I think Putin has maybe not quite realized yet the, the consequences of this, but yeah, the West has not fallen apart. The support is, you know, as, as these new announcements of these new weapon systems, yeah. uh, the debate the past week, the couple couple weeks is, will France, Germany, United States, Britain send tanks to Ukraine? And the answer has been, well, what do we call a tank? Because we're sending stuff. So the United States is sending Bradley infantry fighting vehicles, which are very good for helping facilitate offensives. They're not tanks, but they're they're used besides tanks. The French are sending light tanks. The British are actually now going to send some number of their regular tanks. And the Germans are now having a conversation about whether they and anybody else who owns Leopard 2 tanks will send them, which will then put more pressure on Canada because we have Leopard 2s. And right now we can't export them to Ukraine simply because whenever a responsible arms exporting country exports arms, they put a license on that system. The receiving country cannot transfer that weapon system someplace else without, without the permission of the right. original country. Hmm. And that's what's getting in the way of Finland, the Netherlands, Poland, whoever, from sending their Leopard 2s. So the thing about Germany is it's not so not just about whether Germans will send their own Leopard 2s, but will they give permission for other countries to send their Leopard 2s? And since there's something like 2,000 Leopard 2s in Europe, you know, if they gave 10% of these Leopards to Ukraine, that would be a significant addition to the ability for the, the Ukrainians to, well, have breakthroughs and seize, seize, seize the territory they that lost at the outset of the war.
Well, it'd be nice to think that some of this, all, well, all of these contributions, but especially this Canadian missile defense system would be uh, a way to conclude this, you know, to bring it closer. If if the the typical timeline is less than a year, we're getting close to that. So maybe the delivery of this system will be, I don't know, the final blow. I don't know, dramatic, yeah. but probably well, that, not in and of itself. Well, that has been one of the reasons why we've had this sort of stepwise escalation over the course of time is that we didn't think that the war would last long enough that we could train the Ukrainians on whatever new weapon system was. Well, we shouldn't give them artillery because, you know, it's going to take a few weeks for us to to train them on this. And by the time those weeks elapse, the war will be over. Or we can't give them, you know, other things because by the time we get it to them, the war will be over. Well, most wars end after a few months, but some wars go on for years and years and years. So maybe the better parallel is not like the Falklands or the first Gulf War. And maybe the better parallel might be Iran-Iraq, which lasted for eight years. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's I don't. I'm, it might not go on that long, but I don't think this war is going to end anytime too soon. Mm-hmm. Well, we can all hope for sooner versus longer. That's for sure. We can. But since we've talked about procurement, we should probably talk about the procurement story du jour in Canada, which mm-hmm. is the F-35. Uh, have you been following this story, Aaron? Yes, to a certain extent. You know, these fighter planes come up kind of perennially, don't they, over the last uh, number of years? And and looking at uh, some of the material, I, I'm still wondering if, and maybe you can answer this, have we ever had the F-35 actually delivered any of them to Canada yet? Because I thought no. the yeah, one deal uh, supposedly in 2010 purchased some, but with a delivery in 2016. But I don't know if that ever happened. Did it ever happen? No, we never had. We never actually finished the deal. Right, due to some issues with regard to how it was procured, or well, obviously procured is the the issue. But the untendered kind of idea that there hadn't been a, an open competition is that sort of your understanding? Well, what happened was the conservatives, when they were in power, decided to have a sole source contract and they didn't have a competition. And that raised all kinds of questions. And so then they went back to the drawing board and decided to have a competition, but that was never really fully executed, I don't believe. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then the liberals came to power with Trudeau swearing never to buy F-35s, which you can't really say if you want to have an open competition. No. And so he had to backtrack on that immediately. And then they had a competition. It took them a long time to come up with the requirements and the rules for the competition. And that's the key, because one of the suspicions about the F-35 at the outset had been that the Air Force had come up with a set of requirements. That is, what do we need out of the next fighter plane? That would then game the decision so that way only one plane could win. Mm -hmm. That led to the conservatives developing an independent panel to review the requirements of the F-35 for the fighter replacement program. And our colleague, uh, Phil Agasse, was on that panel. That panel, changing its purpose and continuing to exist to look at other requirements for other projects, because this is always a potential problem, which is the military asks for all kinds of things, but what do they need? What And when they want a helicopter, want a ship, they want a plane, they want a vehicle, what do they really need versus what do they really want? And it's, it's partly about assessing needs and partly about making sure that there's not an effort by the military or other actors to get us to buy a specific thing. Right. So that, that process played on throughout this entire thing. So the requirements were still vetted. Uh, and then they had a, a, a competition. Boeing kind of got pushed out of the competition to Super Hornet mm-hmm. because 
Bombardier and Boeing have a bad relationship with Boeing trying to, you know, uh, pressure, coerce, sue. Bombardier, they lost a lot of Canadian goodwill. I think the government originally came, the Liberals came into power expecting to buy that plane, the Super Hornet. And then the Europeans with the Eurofighter and the Raphael, those dropped out in part because they were existing aircraft that weren't really cutting edge technology. And one of the things we want is a plane that will last for 40 years, given that this last plane will ultimately fly for the Canadians for 40 or 50 years. So we're left with a choice between the Gripens, which is a Swedish plane, and at the and actually still at this moment in time, Sweden is still not a member of NATO, and the F-35. I was not certain who would win because the F-35 was a multi-country project where from the get-go, it was about not only the United States putting almost all of its chips on one plane as opposed to usually buying a few planes, you know, one for the Air Force, one for the Navy, and all that kind of stuff. But they put all the chips on one plane, uh, essentially. They also got a consortium of a lot of other countries. And so that one of the rules of the consortium was that any country that wanted to buy the plane couldn't get a promise of building the plane in that country. Right. So that put a limit on how much Lockheed could promise in terms of jobs and investments in Canadian aerospace, essentially. Mm -hmm. Whereas Gripen could have did say, hey, we're going to spend $10 billion on making this plane in Canada. So I was afraid that the liberals might be able to say, well, that factor is more important than the whole, you know, can it fly? Can it do the job factor? But it turns out that the F-35 won the competition here, just like it won in Australia, it won in Denmark, and it won a bunch of other countries because A, it's the most interoperable plane. That is, it's the best at communicating with other NATO, the planes of other NATO countries, the the ships of NATO countries, all that sort of stuff. So that way they could all be clear about who's who in the zoo so we don't end up shooting at each other. And that we end up all coordinating on what our targets are. And particularly the United States, since we fly North American airspace with NORAD with the Americans. So that was one key advantage. And a second key advantage is this plane, because this part is being bought by a consortium of you know many countries, is going to be continually to be upgraded and updated for the next 40 years. And so we don't have to pay the full freight of every single update because it's going to be a shared cost amongst all the countries that are going to want their planes to be updated. Whereas the Gripen might no longer be manufactured or supported, you know, 20, 25, 30 years out. Whereas we can pretty sure that the F-35 will be something that will be supported by Lockheed and by the United States and by all these other countries for the long term. So I think those were the things that really mattered ultimately in the end. So that's kind of like a, a like having an, an extended warranty, I guess, on purchase in some ways, you know, drawing on some of the material that's talking about problems that, that have plagued the F-35 and the redesign and that sort of thing that has been required. But I guess that's maybe not atypical for these kinds of, of planes. I don't know. I, it's just when you see that you're ordering something that has already got problems, but it, it's probably too late to go back, of course. I don't I don't know how they warrant. I hope the warranty works, essentially. Well, the good news about us taking longer to buy the plane is that other countries have had been the ones who've had to have sort of the right. shakedown cruises, if you will. Right. And so they've had to get planes repaired, whereas the planes we buy will have those fixes built in. So yeah. it's not a perfect plane. But that F-18, that the plane that flied for us, had a lot of these kinds of problems at the start. It's just, it's a very new technology with a lot of software involved. It's 
not optimal, but it's better than the alternatives. And when we make this a very Canadian debate, I always push back and go, every other country had to choose between F-35 and other things. Yeah. And damn near all of them chose the F-35 because they had some of the same challenges of they want to have a plane that operates with allies. They want a plane that will last for 40 plus years. Mm -hmm. They want a plane that has these capabilities. And there really wasn't anything else out there like this. In the mm -hmm. past, the United States would be making multiple planes. And so countries could choose to you know, buy F-15s or F-16s or F-18s. You know, when we bought the F-18, there were two other American planes that we could have chosen from, essentially. And we opted for the F-18 for a variety of reasons, which precede my time here. So I, I, I don't know exactly what the deal was, but, you know, the, each of those planes had their different merits. So you had choices. Uh, mm -hmm. And at the time... Eurofighter was, you know, similar. The Tornado was similar. The Raphael was similar. So you had a whole basket of planes. But I think this time around, it's just gotten so expensive to do the research and the production of these advanced weapon systems. So one last question people would ask me would be, do we need fighter planes at all? Mm -hmm. Why can't we just not worry about this? Because are the Russians really threatening our airspace? And there's a two-part answer to this. The first part is, well, the Russians do send their planes near our airspace every once in a while, and we have to send them away. What do we send them away with? Our fighter mm -hmm. aircraft. And so if we don't want to have our fighter aircraft, then we can let the Americans do it for us, which means then we're sacrificing a little bit of our sovereignty by having the Americans guard our airspace. And I don't think that would go over well with the Canadian people. Or we can wait 20 or 30 years for when drones are capable to do this. But in between, we wouldn't have much of a capability because these planes, the planes we have are really old and they're going to last another 10 years or so, but not much more than that. Mm -hmm. The second thing is, is that of all the heavy equipment we've bought over the past 50 years, we might have used our our fighter planes more than anything else because they did drop bombs on, on Kosovo. They did drop bombs on Libya. They did drop bombs on Iraq and Syria to thwart ISIS. So as opposed to our ships, which you know do all kinds of wonderful things, but they have the ships haven't been the most visible, most important contribution to allied campaigns around the world, the F-18s got to do their job. And they've also been flying patrols uh, in East European airspace, uh, flying for the Latvians and flying for the Romanians. So it's not like these planes will go unused. It just seems like a long, I know that you're, I'm sure, correct in terms of thinking about the drones and the, that capability advancing over the next little while. But you know, the uh, the expectation that something could last for 40 years these days is sort of stunning in some ways, just because, you know, you think of, uh, I know this is not an iPhone that we're talking about, but the, you know, this, you just, the technology is changing so fast and mm -hmm. you can't even get uh, your, your old iPhones updated anymore. And we go through small electronics so quickly, TVs, phones, that sort of thing. And so to have something this for this, I guess this is why you're paying so many dollars, but it just seems in this period that we're living in, that a 40-year expectation for a plane is a very long time. It is, but the big sales pitch that Lockheed Martin makes is that it's essentially a so software platform. Yeah. And so you can keep on updating software without getting new hardware. Mm, yeah. uh, so that that's their big pitch. The other thing I would say is that the United States is currently in the process of rehabilitating or, or refurnishing, renovating. I don't know what the right reword is. Mm -hmm. They're B-52s, the bombers that were built originally in the 1950s and 60s. Hmm. And they are now expecting those planes to fly for 100 years. Wow. They've already been flying for 60 or 70 years. Now, they, their task is not to penetrate Russian airspace like they were long ago, but right. to you know carry a bunch of different weapon systems on that can then 
launch from a distance, but they're still flying. So I guess we're hoping that the airframes that Lockheed is building on the F-35 airframes are durable. Right. I'm not sure we expect the F-18s to fly this long, but they have mm-hmm. been durable. Uh, I was asked by one media outlet uh, about whether there's been things that we could not have do up till now because we had an old battered plane. And the answer is not yet. That is, the F-18s have done their job. There hasn't been a mission we haven't been able to do because we didn't have the latest technology. The delay from 2010 to 2023 of acquiring the F-18, of the F-35, or whatever else plane, hasn't really made a difference in what we can and cannot do in the world. That was going to end at some point in 5, 10, 15, 20 years as the F-18s can't fly and as we want to have the ability to counter the latest technology. Now, if we had to fly over Ukrainian airspace against the Russians right now, the F-18 yep. probably wouldn't be as useful for that as the F-35. Mm-hmm. But up till now, we haven't been fighting a peer-to-peer air power war. So right. the F-18 has been just what we needed for as long as we needed it. But planes hmm. do have an end date. And they do. The F-18 is not going to last 100 years like the P-52. No. Boy. Well, that was a lot. One thing I want to do before we we go away and have our feature interview with Sarah Miriam Martin-Boulay is I do want to mention a couple of the opportunities we have coming up with the Canadian Defense and Security Network. First one is our Summer Institute will be advertised soon, so that way people can start to sign up for next August Summer Institute. We've had you participate in that, Erin, and we really appreciated the contribution you made. Thank you. Um, and so that's one big thing. The second big thing is we'll have our postdoc competition. So if there are any people who are finishing their PhDs looking for a year to hang out with smart people at one of the CSN nodes, whether that's Calgary, Laval, or several other places across Canada, we've placed a couple of people at Queens. We have somebody at Manitoba this year. It's been an excellent networking opportunity and a great mentoring opportunity for us. So that's going on. And most importantly, most timely, the next Capstone seminar, which will be streamed and live in Calgary on March 21st, you guys are hosting our event, which brings together the best young speakers from across all of the CVSN's partners, as well as from some of the Minds Collaborative Networks to one spot. So that way they can all present their the best paper that they presented in 2022 together and gets them the chance to meet each other and gets them a chance to meet, well, this year, all the folks at Calgary. So I appreciate uh, you, Aaron and JC and the other folks at Calgary hosting that event this year. Yeah, we're looking forward to it and hardly wait. Great. Yeah, the first year it was in Canadian Forces College in Toronto, right before the pandemic uh, stopped Mm -hmm. everything. And then the second year it was at Carleton. So this year we're taking it out west. Always a pleasure talking with you, Erin. Be safe. I hope to bump into you when I go skiing out in Calgary uh, in the next few weeks. I hope Uh, so. (laughs) I'm also headed out, out to your neighborhood for an event that you guys are hosting in early February. So I'm sure I'll see you soon. I'm looking forward to it. Today on Battle Rhythm, we're talking with Sarah Miriam Martin Brule, hardly a stranger to Battle Rhythm or to us, particularly since she used to be a student of mine before she went far beyond me. Uh, and she is the co-host of Conseil de Securité, which is our francophone podcast that she's been hosting for more than a year and a half. It's been on hiatus for a while as she's been searching and scouring the country for a suitable co-host for this premier podcast. Sarah Miriam, how are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for having me. It was great to see you at the year ahead. At the year ahead, uh, we launched our new podcast network, and I was very glad to have you by my side since 
at that table, you were the second most experienced podcaster. There was me, you, and it was a couple of teams from Calgary and Vancouver of graduate students and even undergraduates who are working on their podcasts. That would be Security Escape out of Calgary and the NATO Field Report from Simon Fraser, essentially. And so it was great to have you there. How did it feel being the grizzled veteran compared to the young pups on the podcast universe? Well, I'm only 34 episodes ahead of them, so I'm that that of a veteran, if that would be the threshold. But it's quite exciting to see that that graduate students and undergraduate students are finding different platforms to have a voice, share their interests, their research, um, and uh, and promote uh, one another. And they've been able, Security Escape, since they've been going longer, they actually had a, a season last year. So their second season is going to launch in the winter. They've actually interviewed people. They, you know, it's not just students talking to each other. They've interviewed uh, a variety of people. But that brings up the topic of of your podcast that you've been doing for 34 episodes, <laughs> formerly co-hosted with uh, Thomas Juneau. Uh, you've had a variety of, of people on your podcast. Can you tell us a, little, a few of the people you've interviewed thus far? Well, we started uh, with the former uh, Minister of Global Affairs, uh, François-Philippe Champagne, so that was a great start uh, with Thomas Junot. But what we had envisioned from the beginning is, of course, to have a variety of interviewees going from uh, politicians, policymakers, practitioners, scholars, experts, and uh, so offer different types of voices from different political standpoints as well, um, ambassadors. And um, so we had this type of variety in terms of professions. We had also a, a geographical concern. So we had people talking about uh, what's going on in, in the Middle East. We had a, a very touching and moving and important an interview with um, uh, Najat Rojdi, for example, just after the explosions in Beirut um, mm-hmm. in August, and that was uh, that was quite enlightening, but also very hard as a discussion. We had uh, Jose Aranas, who's a human rights practitioner, who was just coming back from Venezuela, talking about the situation there. So covering issues, we had the former minister of uh, of women's condition in Mali. Um, who talked about the, the the context, the local context and conditions as well. So we covered the Middle East, Africa, Latin America, certainly uh, the Indo-Pacific as well, discussing issues on on China. Uh, we discussed, of course, plenty on on the United States, on on Canada as well, on France. So again, a variety of interviewees with a variety of accents as well, and <laughs> I think we're quite proud of that because as francophone, Thomas and I, we are used to work in our second language, but we are always pleased when um, others also talk to us in their own second language. So we had Anglophones speaking to us in French, and that was uh, that was interesting and, and great exchanges. Fantastic. And, and that was really one of the ideas at the outset of this was to have a podcast for people who want to hear things in French. And, and one of the things that was amusing but true was you said at the year ahead that it turns out a lot of your listeners are folks in the civil service who are trying to learn French and so they consume your podcast. Yeah, that was great because I, I think we are we were the first podcast in French in Canada. There are some, of course, in other countries, but in Canada, we're the first podcast in French to focus on security and defense issues. And um, I guess we had all the good keywords for for civil servants who want to learn more vocabulary, expand their vocabulary in in the field that they are interested in. Yes, getting the technical language is hard. I mean, learning any language is difficult on its own, but then to actually be conversant in the specifics of one's field and 
And since you obviously are, are fluent in both languages, uh, not only fluent in, in the words and speaking of it, but also in the expertise on this stuff, it made sense for people to listen to you. Uh, so that raises the question, what are your plans for the next season of Sidious? Well, I won't reveal all the plans, obviously. We have a great guest speaker in uh, in the pipeline, I will say. Also, a surprise co-host. So we've announced at the year ahead that uh, Jean-Christophe Boucher will be co-hosting some episodes with me, and I'm so delighted by that. Uh, Jean-Christophe Boucher is a professor in the, at University of Calgary. But we'll have also uh, two other, at least I hope, two other uh, surprise co-hosts, and that, that will bring their own interest, their own voice, of course, and I think that's going to be quite rich but we are aiming to continue on this variety of expert practitioner policy makers and uh and geographical coverage of the different topics that we will address excellent so now that you, you know you may not be that far beyond the the new folks that you met this week at the year ahead but what advice do you have for the next generation of podcasters to remain curious and um, of course when you do a podcast is very different than from doing an interview in the sense that you have to make your own voice heard but you have to have an active listening which is quite different than in an in-person uh, meeting and uh, I would I would give an advice of honing their their active listening skill in a way in which the ones who listen to the podcast can hear you listen, and um, and having the spontaneity to work on the spontaneous answers and um, and feedback on on the interviewers, which is something that one must practice. Of course, it's a profession to be a journalist and interviewer as well. Uh, and some are, are well trained, as we can hear on, on the CBC and on other networks. But it's uh, I think it's a very good practice for students to uh, to hone that active listening skill. Excellent. Yeah, I it's funny that you talk about active listening, because I've always felt that listening has always been one of my biggest weaknesses. I'm very good at talking, but actually listening to other people is is not always a strength. But on the other hand, I, I also tend to work without a script. So I, I do think that it's it's good to be able to to adjust on the fly as the topics change and as people raise questions and raise issues that one hadn't thought about before. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll surprise you. What are you working on these days uh, in terms of your own research or is it just grading season? It is grading season, but I'm also fortunate to do uh, to do research as well. And I'm working on peacekeeping intelligence, uh, which is a, a new policy that has been adopted by the UN in 2017 and revisited in 2019. I wrote the Gender and Peacekeeping Intelligence Guideline that were approved by the Secretary General last August. So I'm pursuing research on, on peacekeeping intelligence at the UN, given that the puzzle is uh, how can the biggest multinational organization in the world uh, organize information to be shared with all the all the countries in the world and how does that work and how does it make or to what extent does it make peacekeeping more effective mm -hmm. so that these are my my puzzles that i'm thinking about these days oh that that's fascinating uh stuff to be involved with because you know the first rule of intelligence is not to share it uh and in my own experiences when i was working in the pentagon that was always something that our allies always complained about was not having enough intelligence. And, and those are countries that the United States mostly trusted. The UN, of course, can't officially say it distrusts various actors that are members, but they have to be able to share the information. Uh, and so the question is, is how, how secret is the stuff that is shared? That is, countries are going to be reluctant to share their best stuff 
uh, if they know that their adversary is going to get it. They're always worried about revealing how they get their information. So not always so much about the particular nugget of information that they found, but that by revealing it, they'll reveal their means and sources. How did they actually get the information? So have has that been, how has that the UN been handling that particular problem of, of the reluctance to share information? Well, what the UN wanted to emphasize as well is that peacekeeping intelligence is completely different than national intelligence. And that's okay. something that the UN really wants to stress because there's no clandestine activities, of course, at the UN. That's not the purpose. And the reason why they develop peacekeeping intelligence, and, and I say it, and of course, I can't emphasize it enough, but there's a hyphen for peacekeeping intelligence between peacekeeping and intelligence intelligence to make sure that it's something quite unique and it was developed in order to enhance the efficiency of peacekeeping missions to protect their own uh, personnel so UN personnel but also to enhance the protection of civilians so that's the mindset in which the policy has been developed but the sharing of course has different dimensions so we talk about the sharing of information within the mission so between the military the civilians and the police so that's already a challenge how do you share when you have different vision different techniques different um, uh, ways of seeing security as well and uh, and of course how do you mobilize the different member states that participate to the peacekeeping mission to help out in that effort uh, with all the questions and caveats that you mentioned that uh, some member states have the means to obtain some information but won't reveal their methods and uh, and again always staying in a non-clandestine way always for the purpose of enhancing the security and safety of personnel and protection of civilians. So there's different layers of priorities and of caveats that must be respected that make peacekeeping intelligence quite a unique challenge uh, within peacekeeping operations. Uh, which then leads to the natural question of is, is the UN, I would assume that if there's discussion of a, a mission in Haiti, that there's they're, they're collecting information now to assess the challenges so that way they can advise on how best to peacekeep Haiti? Well, for now, I think it's more political missions, but of course, it must say that peacekeeping operations or peace operations, whether they're special political missions or, or full-on multidimensional stability missions are always a tool and it's always a primacy of politics, um, whatever types of operations are deployed. So yes, they, um, they collect uh, information. At the UN, we talk about acquiring information to, to assess the trade-offs, the stakes, but also the scope of the mandate to cover and uh, and to also assess the will of the the national political actors to um to to back a mission like that or to and to support uh, different types of process whether they are political processes or or again stability multi-dimensional stability missions which are of course much more costly so what would be the cost who would be uh, contributing troops who would be contributing financially as well so all of those informations are to be taken into account well that's that's really helpful uh i think it makes sense that that the un peacekeeping uh department does do what you're what you've been helping them do which is develop more expertise on collecting information you can't make a plan without well you can't make plans without information but the, those will be plans that are dead on arrival uh so it makes complete sense to me that they do a better job of institutionalizing and habituating themselves into collecting intelligence uh, in the ways that you describe. 
Yeah, they acquire, they talk about acquiring information rather than collecting um, to to really emphasize again the difference between national intelligence versus intelligence mm -hmm. at the UN. So it's about really better understanding the context, better assessing the risk and threats to the security of the personal and of the protection of civilians and to make better analysis uh, as well of what are, uh, to do better forecasting to, to the threats and, and again, risk to, uh, to the civilians. Yeah, so I, excuse me for sticking with the old language. Uh, uh, you know, you get socialized into thinking about things in one way. And I think what you're doing is so important is you're helping to socialize the, the UN into thinking about things differently so that they can be more effective. And they're putting up new trainings as well, and I think that's great because they are this. There are new handbooks. Uh, so I was I was lucky and glad to uh, to co-author the first Joint Mission Analysis Center handbook on analysis. So to provide a certain standardization. So of course the challenge is always to to provide a standard of doing analysis while being anchored in the different contexts of the missions, because of course those contexts vary significantly if you are in the South Sudan or in Central African Republic or in the De Democratic Republic of Congo or Mali, the national contexts are drastically different, yet you need to provide a certain types of standardizations of, uh, of methods of how to do analysis, what are the different steps, the different process. So the training provides that type of resource of um, of standardizing the practice also professionalizing the practice not those not all of those who are doing peacekeeping intelligence within missions have a, an intelligence background um, so that's to really to provide common points of reference to those who now work in peacekeeping intelligence units within peacekeeping missions the, the inevitable question is how did you get into this particular aspect i mean i knew you were involved in doing you and peacekeeping stuff but how did you get from what you were doing before into sort of the this this domain well as you know too well having read all of my papers on it uh, i did my phd while i was doing my phd with you on deterrence and and of course in order to deter you need to understand um what are the the threats and risks that are posed and how to react to those and for my dissertation as you know i interviewed um uh, belligerents in the field on what made them stop doing what they were doing, what they were not supposed to do. But that entailed a certain certain risk uh, in terms of um, of field work and uh, having a family now with uh, young kids. I decided to work more on the UN side and see how the UN was to go about assessing risk and threats and how they they were obtaining their own situational awareness. So I got more interested in the situational awareness uh, analysis from the UN side and from peacekeeping side. And that's how I got involved. And I was lucky enough to be invited in Norway to participate to a joint mission analysis center course. And from there, I was invited to uh, co-write the first handbook. And from there, I was invited by the uh, International Peace Institute to write uh, a first report on, um, on peacekeeping intelligence. And that was released in, in 2020. And now I'm working on a book on peacekeeping intelligence. Excellent. Uh, I think you're making a huge contribution there, as you have also been making a huge contribution here in Canada with with CDS. I think it's uh, terrific that we have this podcast, uh, and I appreciate your leadership on it, uh, getting uh, new voices uh, and old voices on on the uh, podcast. The so last question is: is uh, what are you doing for the holidays? 
I'm playing board games with my girls <laughs> and spending time with the family. So not uh, not grading and uh, pausing the research for a little bit. And you're not traveling? Not traveling. Nope. Staying home. Excellent. Uh, well, I wish I could join you out there because I enjoyed skiing nearby where you live. Uh, I love the Eastern Townships. But that was one of the big costs of moving from Montreal to Ottawa was that. You're always welcome. And uh, as you know, we make great beer at Bishop's. <laughs> we always have a, you're, you're always welcome to come on campus. Sorry, can, can, can we say this again? Because we got my, my mother-in-law was calling on the phone. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> while, while you're playing games, I'm headed south to hang out with my mother-in-law and my, and, and hang out with my sister-in-law and my nieces, who I only see once a year. It's the. The great American trade of Thanksgiving for one family, Christmas vacation with another family. So it involves lots of driving. But I really wish I could go out with, and hang out with you and Bishops because it's the Eastern Townships were one of my favorite parts of Quebec. Well, you're always welcome. And as you know, we make great beer at Bishops University as well. So we can provide you with that. And uh, we would look forward to have you back on campus anytime. That sounds terrific. Have a great holiday and a happy new year. Thank you to you as well.